This is the PGA of Canada Professional Development Podcast Series. Industry leaders, PGA professionals discussing technology, fitness, planning your business, building your career. These talks, these ideas, developed for you to live a better life and earn a better living. My name is Rodney, and I've got Duncan and Brian. How are you guys doing? Fantastic. Very good. Thank you. Today, we're talking about rethinking your golf course marketing strategy, breaking consumer barriers. And uh, Brian, I'll get you to explain a bit about that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think something when we go to market, anything really, not just a golf course, is we spend a lot of time looking at what are some unique things? What are things that we can use to help market, in this case, a golf course? What we sometimes forget about is instead of always telling people why they should come, here are all the great reasons why you should come, we kind of forget this whole other side of the market, which is why wouldn't people come to my golf course? Why do they go somewhere else instead of coming to my golf course? So a really brief example, um, when I worked in the golf business years ago, I worked at a golf course that was, they positioned themselves through advertising as being one of the the, the most difficult courses in all of Alberta. We had a lot of water. Um, it was a fairly narrow golf course, but they positioned themselves as one of the, the toughest tests in the area. And at the time, we thought that was really cool because I could say I work at one of the hardest golf courses in the area. But as I started to think about it, I started thinking, you know what? When you say that you work at the hardest golf course in Alberta or one of the hardest ones in the area, it, it kind of can turn a lot of people off too. So if I'm a beginner golfer and I hear this golf course is really, really difficult, one of the toughest in the, in the entire province, what am I thinking? Am I really thinking, hey, this is the kind of place I want to go? Or am I thinking there's no way I ever want to go there. I want to go somewhere different. So if we start thinking about the barriers, the reasons people don't come to your golf course, we can start to develop some very interesting strategies. So Duncan and I have a whole bunch of examples from the time, our time in the golf business. So perception, I guess, would be the first one I kind of touched on already. Think about how people perceive your golf course. So if they perceive your golf course as it's never in good shape, it's, you know, a bit of a goat track. They don't water their fairways. If somebody perceives it that way, are they inclined to visit your golf course if they want to go for a nice outing on a Saturday? Probably not. Maybe a marketing strategy in turn would be, well, why can't we use social media and keep people updated with our course conditions and show people that we actually have really nice fairways, really nice greens, etc. So the perception is a big one, whether it's difficulty, you know, your golf course isn't very nice. However people perceive your golf course, that can really you know, drive a negative uh, annotation around your golf course and then cause some issues. So, And to Brian's point, I mean, one one bad year or one bad month even of course conditions, people start talking about it. And this is why if you actually update them on social media, um, you can kind of nip that in the bud before it even becomes a big deal. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, social is so easy. A couple pictures of the fairways or a couple pictures of the greens can set a whole lot of minds at ease saying, oh, wait, you know what, for, for a second, I'm looking on the, at their page on Facebook and I see the greens are in good shape. I see the fairways are nice. Um, I've seen examples of this in the ski industry where they'll take pictures of the, of the conditions. So somebody driving up to the mountains this weekend, they can look on Facebook and see, oh, look, they just got a bunch of new snow. I'm going to go there even if before my perception was, oh, they, the hill isn't any good. They never have new snow. They just showed you that, you, that, they, that they do. 
I mean, obviously courses have regular maintenance as well. If there's times that the course isn't in the best condition, as long as you're open with the customers and say, you know, there's a discount this week because we just um, just aerated the greens or whatnot, um, that doesn't become a part of your brand. It's just a literally people know that they aerated just like every other course. And then once it's back to normal, um, yeah, basically the, the brand isn't affected for these kind of one-offs. It's when you don't try and correct it, don't fix it, that all yeah. of a sudden it can become a problem. And you and I both know from working in pro shops that one of the worst things you could do was spring to a customer when they arrive at your golf course that we just aerated the greens. Yeah, without telling them when they booked the tee time, that was definitely the worst oh, worst oh. experience. Yeah. Okay, so nightmares. What I'm getting from this is that communication is the key. Mm -hmm. Whether you're communicating um, with them on social media or whichever platform, but you have to let the people know what's going on, right? And communication, even even more than communication, is education. So I'm trying mm -hmm. to educate you as to yeah. why, you know, I think, or you think my course is like this. I have to educate you as to why it's a little bit different. I can't let word of mouth always hope to carry the proper message. So sometimes I need to, you know, educate people and get in front of things. If you think of another barrier, a really, really big one is cost. And I think this this spans the entire golf business is the idea of, you know, part of the reason so-and-so doesn't want to get involved in golf is because it, it costs a whole lot of money. Yeah. Um, so if that's a barrier to participation, you start thinking, okay, as a golf course, what can I do to, to convince people that, hey, you know, spending X number of dollars with us, it'll get you a fun afternoon or a fun evening. So Duncan and I were talking beforehand, the idea of, you know, when people think of, well, how can I get around this perception? It doesn't necessarily mean discounting green fees. It means showing more value. Yeah. I mean, and then the other thing is, is not thinking about the golf course. Um, I mean, it's more than just the course. There's mm -hmm. the driving range. There's, there's probably chipping and putting greens. Um, giving people the opportunity to enjoy and learn the game is actually um, a, a real thing here where, where the cost can be reduced because, I mean, you're going to hit range balls or whatnot. Um, cost is very low to do that. I mean, even on the course, we've seen a lot, bunch of courses um, nowadays uh, kind of adopting the, the kind of a junior first mentality where they build kind of junior courses within their existing courses. They have markers out of the 150 yard markers um, and it's like a, a junior version of the full course. Um, it doesn't affect the speed of play, which is another issue we'll talk about in a second. But, um, you know, if you kind of rethink about the how you can reduce costs and reduce the impact on your golf course as a whole to the other uh, full paying members, um, it's a real good way to get new people to join the game and get interested in the game, which could eventually lead to, um, you know, normal tee times down the road. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I can't think of a time where an empty tee sheet makes you money, right? No. So to your point, the idea, if we're able to, to generate revenue elsewhere, we can maybe lower the overall cost for somebody to come out because we're gaining revenue elsewhere. So take me for an example. I've got three kids, two of whom are quite small and would be in the position where they would at least find golf a little bit interesting and would want to give it a try. So if you think about it from my end, I think, okay, I want to go and teach my girls how to golf, not just at a driving range. I'd like to take them out on a course because they like to see things and they like getting outside and they see animals and stuff. But from my end, my perception of golf, if I was not educated like I am in the golf business, would be it's too expensive to take my two little girls out. I'm not paying a full price round for them to hit three balls in the course of a round. So if that's my perception that golf is too expensive and I can't take my family out for an afternoon, how could a golf course break that barrier down and go, hold up, 
there are opportunities where you can come out perhaps on a Friday night or a Thursday night or whatever the case may be where one paying adult can bring their little kids out and the little kids can have a little bit of fun hitting from, like you said, the 150s or whatever the case may be. That's going to help spur down the road, spur more tee times. Maybe I come back with my friends now because your golf course helped me. I want to help you. Mm -hmm. The kids eventually become paying junior members or whatever the case may be. So start thinking about it from the consumer side. Why wouldn't they come to my golf course? What can I do to kind of alleviate those barriers? I mean, some other things that I just thought of off the cuff here was, um, I mean, if, if you arrange something where the adult pays for nine holes with a cart and the, the kid either plays for free or the kid maybe just pays the cart fee with the parents mm -hmm. and they go and play around um, basically just at, at their leisure on, on the nine holes. Um, I mean, there's, there's lots of different ways that you can approach this. I just think the real thing is um, thinking about cost um, and from a junior perspective, I mean, thinking about getting people to join the game and ways to provide value to different segments of the market um, that may not be willing to pay the full amount. Yeah. And I, when we talk about value, you think about anything we do, you know, whether it's going out to eat or going to buy something, you might go to a restaurant, let's say, and it's perceived as being a little bit expensive, but there's that one little thing that gets in your head, oh, it's expensive, but you know, I get free breadsticks and salad when I go. Now you think <laughs> yeah. about the cost, seriously, think about the cost of salad and breadsticks, right? It's yep. minimal. And all of a sudden in my head, there's additional value there. And it's like, oh, you know what? I'm on board with this restaurant. I know it's a little bit expensive, but look, I get free breadsticks and salad, which are essentially a zero. And pop a zero. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So at a golf course, what kind of value can you add? Not necessarily value that's going to add tons and tons of money to your bottom line, but what are the little things you can do outside of the standard ones, the um, the club cleaning, etc. And I think, like, I mean, executive courses across the country really have an advantage here, but they they don't position themselves very often as as the go-to for families or for places to learn to play golf. And really, that's 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 their whole purpose. I mean, they're shortened versions of um, full courses. I've even seen um, some courses out there that have their 18-hole, you know, championship course, and then they have a nine-hole side track, which is executive, short, and just a place to kind of. Um, you know, train and, and get beginners interested in the game enough to to, to migrate up to the big course. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the sort of um, branding that Brian was talking about, where if you brand yourselves as a, um, you know, junior friendly, family friendly golf course, um, and you have this side area or an executive course to do it, I mean, there's some real opportunities there for growth. Um, and I, I mean, what if your golf course was just positioned in the marketplace as the place for beginners? Yeah. I don't think you'd have a problem, you know, whether it's beginner-friendly course, beginner-friendly prices, beginner-friendly general attitude of the people that play because you're playing around beginners. I would have a, I have a hard time seeing how that wouldn't work in a lot of markets. Yeah. I don't see that very often, but why not just go, you know what, the PGA Tour is never coming to my golf course. So instead of being being something that I probably am not, hey, everyone, you know what, we're the place for beginners. If you want to come and play, pay by the hole or we've got cheap rentals or opportunities to come out and, and give it a try, I think it'd be a very unique selling proposition. And think of all the barriers you're breaking in that marketplace too. Exactly. So. It makes so much of a difference because if I find a golf course where I can just go to and I know I can learn, who knows, I might like the game, right? I'll tell people as well. Well, and, you're, and we were talking about this when we before we started the podcast. Rodney isn't a golfer. So, you know, from his standpoint, when we talk about barriers, 
some of the probably the biggest barriers for you would be you don't want to hold play up at a golf course. So you wouldn't feel comfortable playing because yeah. everybody else is perceived to know what they're doing and you don't want to be the one person that has no clue, right? Yeah. Um, Always ask them to play through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it is it is kind of a turnoff for that experience because I mean you have all these people that know what they're doing and then you're sitting there doing your thing and then um, basically it, it kind of puts a negative light on that experience, which means you might not come there again. Yeah. So by positioning your golf course as something that is like, you, we, we adopt this sort of learning mentality. Um, that would be a way to go to kind of rebrand yourself and, and, you know, get some new business from it. And if you do do that podcast listeners, I want to hear about it because I think it would do really, really well. So, um, <laughs> another, another, um, barrier that I think needs to kind of be broken is pace of play. Yeah. So for a lot of people, I don't golf. Because I can think of a million other things I can do in six hours or seven hours on a Saturday. So that's a big barrier for a lot of people, not for individual golf courses, but the sport as a whole. You know, a lot of people can't burn seven hours or six hours now, um, including transportation to and from the course, etc. So if that's a barrier, what kind of things could you do to kind kind of squash that barrier? So you could think of things like... I understand that you should, you know, golf courses encourage people to play 18 holes because they want to gain the full revenue share. But why don't we adopt something where, you know, you can play nine holes if you want. You're still getting people out to the course. There's still other opportunities to make money. But again, I'd rather have a tee sheet that's full and full throughout the day as opposed to really full in the morning. And you could fly an airplane through the fairway in the afternoon. Um, so, so little things like that. And I know Duncan, having worked at a golf course as I have, um, the idea of time is always, always, always a big deal for a lot of people. Well, yeah. I mean, if, if you think about it, I mean, from a regular course, um, I've seen many times, you know, the tee sheets on weekends are usually started, started with crossovers. So you get as many people out at the mm-hmm. same time as, as, um, as you can. Um, but obviously then there's the turnaround when there's the whole course is completely booked up for the next two hours after that, which mm-hmm. is kind of the challenge. So, um, I mean, some other things with pace of play is, I mean, you have to kind of think about, um, how that's a barrier and how you can get around it. I mean, if you just have an 18 hole golf course, um, I mentioned before about the junior tees at the 150 yard markers, but in reality, those people generally won't be playing there until, you know, mid afternoon on weekends or weeknights. They're not going to go Saturday morning and go play. So one major thing with pace of play that I've noticed on golf courses is, um, I mean, there's this perception that they try to um, put as many tee times as possible back to back to back. I mean, I played at courses where the the um, break between tee times was seven and eight minutes consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of funny because, you know, initially that course, when I worked there, every single weekend day, we we're looking, you know, 45 minutes behind, hour behind, and it would take five, six hours to finish the round mm-hmm. where... Um, in reality, if they actually re-looked at their tee sheets and said, okay, well, let's just put them 10 minutes apart. I have, yes, I have less tee times, but um, I have people getting around the course a lot faster and their experience is a lot more positive. Because what we can end up noticing is that if you have seven and eight minute tee times, eventually um, those people talk that, oh no, don't play there on the weekends because it's going to take you five, six hours. Mm-hmm. If you can yeah. keep a consistent experience on the course, that's, that's you know, four and a half, a reasonable time on the weekends. Um, that word will travel more, actually probably less so than the bad one will. So keeping in mind that, um, stuffing as many people in the course as possible, isn't really the best goal in the long term for your brand is also something that I think golf courses really need to realize when it comes to pace of play. Well, it's a long tail approach, right? And we talked right off the top about perception. If your golf course is perceived as the place where I'm going to play six hour rounds on a Saturday, 
why would I go there? Yep. Give me one reason why I would go there. And, you know, so you might have got my money one time, like fool me once, but I'm not coming back again, right? I'm going to go somewhere where I know I'm not going to play six hours. So it is, that's a, a longer tail strategy. But you're right. If you can change that perception in, hey, generally at XYZ Golf Course on a Saturday, I can get around in four and a half hours. That would appeal to me. Yeah. That would that would be a, a big, big deal for so me. So it's about the experience, right? Exactly. Going back to the experience again. And and something we, we touched on off the top too. So all these different things we're talking about, that's one side. We've got some cool ideas. Then there's the marketing side as well. How do we get that message out, whether it be through social, whether it be on our website? And we'll touch on websites in a little bit too. So we have all these cool ideas. How can we get the perception to come out and, and, and move those ideas out? The last one that um, I was kind of thinking of is, is sort of the um, the dress code and kind of rules of the game. The the, the perception that the game, you know, is uh, very strict to the rules, etc. Um, you have to wear certain clothes, um, you know, don't be loud, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, I'm seeing a bit of that change. I've, I've been on the golf course and whether you like it or not, I've been hearing people with radios and listening to music while they're on the golf course. Um, this preconception of the game, I think, is, is one that is um, a barrier for a lot of people because mm -hmm. it's just not perceived as fun. It's not perceived as casual. It may be something for golf courses to start thinking a way around that. Um, I don't know, Brian, you have any ideas on that? I, I think, yeah, I think maybe there's opportunities at certain times where maybe the rules are a little bit laxed and it's more <laughs> for fun on a Sunday night type of thing. Because, I mean, with this, you have to, you're kind of walking this fine line of, tradition which will always be in golf till the the day the, the game goes away tradition will always be there right and it should be there it, yep. it is part of the game still but at the same time like you said if we start going down the tradition road too far you start to get away from it being fun and it is a game and why would i pay for something that isn't fun in my mind if i'm a, if i'm a golfer so i think there's ways where could you lax the dress code a little bit Perhaps. Maybe that's a barrier. I, I'm not going to go. And I used to hear this at the golf courses I worked at. I didn't go play today because I didn't have a collared shirt and khakis. Okay, if we can pull that back slightly, I'm not saying wear your best jean cutoffs and a tank top, but let's make it a little bit more, you know, you know, we'll... We'll, we'll lax those restrictions a little bit. I mean, another one that I remember is, I mean, everyone has to have their own golf bag. Um, when yeah. it comes to juniors, for example, they might not ha have a golf bag. They're just mm -hmm. using some cut-down clubs from their parents. So, I mean, there, there's little things that I think that um, if you loosen up a little bit, I think it'll help um, kind of build the game. Yeah, and I mean, and, and perhaps there's going to be golf courses that will be listening that um, – if it's a private course, well, you have you have a certain level that you have to uphold with your members, right? Totally understandable. I get that, but I think um, your perceptions don't lie so much on the on the course as they do. Why wouldn't I join that club? Those are the kind of perceptions you have to worry about, I think. Um, but from the from the standpoint of you mentioned the idea of everybody has to have their own bag. We used to joke about it and say, well, the golf bags actually don't pay the green fees. The people do. If there's one bag and four people, I still make four green fees. Exactly. <laughs> so, until, unless I don't know something at golf courses pay green fees, but I'm not too sure. That should just give me another idea. There's, there was um, a course that I used to work at where we would um, occasionally have oversized holes cut yep. on the greens. Um, so basically they were three, four times the size of a normal golf hole. To try and more or less make the game more fun. I mean, that everyone was trying to chip stuff in all the time. I think in actuality, you scored worse. But the point of the matter was um, that the game became more fun. It was a different approach to it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just that's the whole point. Get people out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. And my takeaway from this is 
find little ways. They don't have to be groundbreaking or, you know, reinventing the wheel, but ways to make your golf course more welcoming. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and I mean, just listen to the people. Go pay attention on social media. Go listen to when people talk about your golf course or about golf in general. Hear all the reasons that so-and-so doesn't want to golf. What few things out of that giant list could I pick up on and go, you know what? If I was to somehow tailor some of my services or products around breaking that particular barrier, it's only going to help. So that's something just to kind of think about um, moving forward and not so much, here's why you should come to my course. Why don't you come to my course and what can I do about it? Okay, to my favorite part of the show, which we call the lightning round. And oh, um, Do we have any is... lightning round music? <laughs> yes, we do. Oh, wow. Can't wait. <laughs> I'm going to pose this question to Duncan and Brian. Sounds like a competition, Duncan. Well, we'll see. Let's see who wins. Who's going first? <laughs> Duncan, I will allow you to go first. Okay. okay. Now, today's question for the lightning round is, if you were to walk into a golf course right now and make a change to have a positive impact on the bottom line, what would that change be? Mm -hmm. hmm. Interesting. Well, I would say kind of the thing that I constantly see um, that needs fixing um, would be fix the website, especially on mobile devices. Um, nowadays, mobile's what, 60, 70% of traffic. Yeah. Um, everyone's on the go. So if you have a website that doesn't respond to um, the device that it's on, people can't read what they need to see, people can't book tea times or whatnot, um, I really think that a website, a nice, clean website that's functional and user-friendly is a huge um, brand deterrent for, sorry, a huge business deterrent for a lot of golf courses because... They can't navigate it. They're just going to go on the next one. And talk about breaking a barrier. If the barrier is I'm not coming to your golf course because I can't see what I need to see on your website. I can't find your rates. I can't see the scorecard. I mean, like, that's, <laughs> I would say that's, that's, that's really basic, but that is, that is a serious barrier. But you know what? And we laugh about it. Um, obviously, coming from a digital background, we kind of laugh about it. But Duncan is right. Like the simplest things, if I go on your website from my phone and it looks like a dog's breakfast, I'm not going to waste any time. I'm going to go to the next golf course. I'm not sticking around. I'm assuming you're posing the same question to me. Yes, it's the very same okay. question to you, Brian. Okay, so when we talk about how we could have a positive impact on the bottom line, um, coming from both a, a golf course background and a golf retail background, we talk about an increase in the bottom line, and we think all the time about how can we get more people out to the course. It doesn't necessarily mean that more people have to come to the course. If I have 100 people come to my course every day and they spend an average of $50, I have a general idea of how much money I'm going to make. What if I still have 100 people coming to the golf course, but I put different things in place where I can raise the average cost or the average um, the average amount of money I make per person by $10. So I'm making $60 per person, whether that be through food and beverage, Credits, um, yeah. credit, yeah, pro shop, um, range, uh, there's a whole bunch of different ways you can, you can, you know, you go to a grocery store and you're, you were going to check out. There's a reason there's batteries at the till. It's because they're thinking of things that you might need and you might have forgot. And if I pick up one pack of batteries, I've just spent an extra four or five dollars. So from a golf course perspective, you know, the idea of breaking the barrier or everything's too expensive. What if my green fees were actually very reasonable? But I had a whole ton of other ways when you came to my golf course to make money. So I'm pulling you in with a reasonable green fee. But guess what? I've got really good food and beverage. 
I've got a really good pro shop with reasonable prices. I've maybe, maybe my, my green fee doesn't include range, but I've got range available for X number of dollars. I've got you in the door with a reasonable green fee, not a discounted green fee, but a reasonable green fee. And now here's all these other costs that are out there that I, you have the opportunity, you know, I'm putting stuff in front of you. It's a different way, different approach, but I think oftentimes, whether it's golf or anything else we do on the marketing side, there's two different ways to increase revenue. You know, do you want to pull more people in the door or get those people that are already coming through the door to spend a little bit more? I mean, and to your point, I've seen it a lot actually lately while uh, in the States that they, they, the green fee includes some sort of uh, food and beverage credit. Yeah. So you get like a $10 food and beverage credit, which, you know, it'll basically buy a three quarters of a hamburger and, you know, you usually have a beer after your round. But the point is they get you in the club after the round, which otherwise you wouldn't have done. Yeah. yeah. So, so they make their money off the, you know, the profit from, from the food and the drinks, um, in addition to the golf. Yeah. And I think, I think for a lot of courses, um, all the other stuff sometimes falls by the wayside because our number one, my number one goal is getting people out on the first tee and getting them around the course. Whereas, you know, in theory, could a nine hole green fee that actually has dinner afterwards and hits some balls beforehand be more valuable than the 18 holer that gets the round, buys a beer on the beer cart and goes home? Where are you really making more money? I bet you it's pretty close. Or well, not just money, but margin. I bet you it's the nine-holer with the food and beverage afterwards. And that's sort of why, I mean, if golf courses just assume that that the golf itself is the only driver of the business there, rather than thinking that, you know, I have a driving range, I have lessons, I have food and beverage. I mean, even, even the off-season, you can have um, cross-country skiing, or maybe you do something crazy and do like frisbee golf on various holes that are out there. There's so many different ways to make money. But if you're if you have the preconceived notion that golf is the only way to get that revenue, then you're kind of missing out on a big part of the market. Mm -hmm. no, for sure. All right, some great insight today. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Duncan. And uh, today we're just talking about rethinking your golf course marketing strategy, breaking consumer barriers. And until next time, bye. See you later. <laughs> bye.